A Light to the Nations is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Therefore, the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of his tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness. For this reason, the people also met him, because they heard that he had done this sign. The Pharisees, therefore, said among themselves, You see that you are accomplishing nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Hello, and welcome to episode 16 of A Light to the Nations, I'm your host, Father Fred Shaheen. In chapter 12 of the Gospel of John, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. Unlike some of the miracles or signs Jesus does in the Gospels, this one is not done in secret. Rather, it draws large crowds and attracts the attention of everyone, both Jews and non-Jews. In that last verse we heard, the lament of the Pharisees among themselves, you are accomplishing nothing, look, the world has gone after him, is ironic. The religious leaders realize they can't do anything to prevent people from being drawn to Jesus. The very public act of raising Lazarus intensified the interest in him. And yet, in the same gospel, we are assured right from the beginning that Jesus was totally rejected by all. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world knew him not. He came to his own, and his own received him not. The world that these Pharisees are referring to includes both Jews and Gentiles. Immediately after we hear that the world has gone after him, we hear, Now there were certain Greeks among those who had come to worship at the feast. Then they came to Philip who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The specific mention that there were certain Greeks and that they went to Philip, and the reiteration that Philip is from Bethsaida in Galilee, are details worth noting. When John had introduced Philip back in chapter 1, the first bit of information we are told about him is that he was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. In Hebrew, Bethsaida means house of hunting and fishing, so it's a reference to the work that an apostle does. The repetition of Philip's city, along with John's addition earlier that it was the city of Andrew and Peter, reinforces the apostolic mission which was directed at all nations. It is fitting that those Greeks who were coming to Jerusalem seek out the one with the Greek name, Philip. What is of particular interest here, though, is that they tell Philip that they want to see Jesus, and Philip tells Andrew, another disciple with a Greek name, and the two of them go to Jesus. The author of John is emphasizing Greeks seeking out Jesus and particularly doing so after they had heard about him from Jews. 
Remember how we were told earlier that the people who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead bore witness and that this is the reason people met him because they had heard he had done this sign. This is a scenario of Jews having seen Jesus raise up Lazarus, going and evangelizing others, including non-Jews, and more specifically, some Greeks, based on that witness. Indeed, the world seems to be going after Jesus at this point, in that the raising of Lazarus is attracting the attention of everyone without distinction. When Jesus hears that there are some Greeks who wish to see him, Notice his response. He doesn't say, great, bring them to me. He doesn't attempt to seek them out, and there's no invitation to come and see, as there is in chapter 1 of John. Instead, Jesus immediately begins to speak about his death and offers a general invitation to follow him. But Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come that the Son of Man should be glorified. Most assuredly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it produces much grain. He who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, let him follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, him my father will honor." We might say that at this point in the story, it is too late to be merely curious about Jesus. If one wishes to see him, then one must be willing to serve him, and to serve him is to follow him, and he is going to his death. And it is in that condition of having followed Jesus to his death on the cross that one will be honored by God. It is this invitation that Jesus presents to all after Philip and Andrew tell him about those Greeks that wish to see him. The invitation comes with a consequence for accepting it, one which the author of John will stress with a specific literary device. More on that in just a moment. In the passage from John 12, Jesus speaks about his death in terms of being glorified. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven saying, I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. The phraseology used here combines references to Jesus' glorification with his crucifixion to the point that it's impossible to separate the two. And that's the intention. His crucifixion is his glorification. His being lifted up has a double meaning. It's not as if one follows after the other. The author makes that double meaning very clear in the following verses. And I, if I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all peoples to myself. This he said, signifying by what death he would die. That's John 12, 32 and 33. Jesus also speaks about judgment in the verse immediately preceding that. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. This combination of references to Jesus' glorification slash death and the drawing together of all peoples along with the judgment of the world 
calls to mind the last chapter of Isaiah. For behold, the Lord will come with fire and with his chariots like a whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire and by his sword, the Lord will judge all flesh and the slain of the Lord shall be many. That's Isaiah chapter 66, verses 15 and 16. And then a few verses later, we hear, It shall be that I will gather all nations and tongues, and they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them, and those among them who escape, I will send to the nations, to Tarshish and Put and Lud, who draw the bow, and Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands afar off who have not heard my fame nor seen my glory." and they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. In the last verses of this last chapter of Isaiah, the first of the major prophetic books, we hear of the judgment of all, the leaving behind of a remnant, and the sending forth of that remnant to the Gentiles, which includes specifically Greeks, to gather them together to worship. Tarshish Put and Tubal are all names that appear in Genesis chapter 10 as descendants of the three sons of Noah. Put is said to be a descendant of Ham, Noah's younger son, and both Javan and Tubal, descendants of Japheth, the elder, and Tarshish, a descendant of Javan. At the center of the five names mentioned in the passage from Isaiah is Lud, said to be a descendant of Shem in Genesis chapter 10. It is Shem who receives the blessing of the Lord and in whose tents Japheth is invited to dwell. But of particular interest to us here is Javan, which, when it appears in the Septuagint as Aeonan, is translated Greece. So in the biblical narrative in John, when those Greeks come asking to see Jesus, we hear it as a fulfillment of the description of judgment at the end in the prophecy of Isaiah. The glorification of Jesus in his being lifted up on the cross signals the judgment described in Isaiah, with many being punished, some being spared, and others still being brought in from afar by those who were spared. In John, Jesus says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself, which includes the survivors of Israel, as well as those in the far-off coastlands. Then they shall bring all your brethren for an offering to the Lord out of all nations, on horses and in chariots and in litters, on mules and on camels, to my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord. As the children of Israel bring an offering in a clean vessel into the house of the Lord, and I will also take some of them for priests and Levites, says the Lord." The consequence of accepting Jesus' invitation to follow is that believers would be cast out of the synagogue. The author of John emphasizes this using a clever literary device. In John's gospel, unlike the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there is no account of Jesus' transfiguration. In John, we might say that Jesus' glorification in chapter 12 corresponds to his transfiguration in the Synoptic Gospels. In the Gospel of John, when Jesus announces the judgment of the world and asks his Father to glorify his name, the voice of God speaks 
saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. Significantly, this occurs between the first and second mention of believers being cast out of the synagogue on account of following Jesus. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' transfiguration in which the voice of the Father speaks, affirming Jesus' authority and his sonship, occurs between the first and second predictions of his passion. See the literary parallel here. In John, Jesus' death is treated as a foregone conclusion. He doesn't teach his disciples about what will happen, and then they struggle to accept the teaching, as we hear in Mark. In John, we don't hear about him having a moment in which he asks if this cup may pass. In John, the cross isn't a question, but rather it's an inevitability. Therefore, all that's left for Jesus to do is announce his death in terms of the glory of God and the judgment of the world. At this point, the matter at hand is not the cross itself, but the consequence of one accepting the gospel of the crucified Messiah, which, for the believer, means being cast out of the synagogue. So in John, the three mentions of being cast out of the synagogue function the same way Jesus' three predictions of his passion do in Mark. In both cases, between the first and second mentions, we hear Jesus' authority affirmed by the voice of his Father. Further, in the midst of the same passage, the wording of Jesus' pronouncement of judgment, now is the ruler of this world cast out, refers in an ironic way to the fate of believers who follow his invitation. It is they who will be cast out because of their belief by the religious authorities. We can say a couple more things about this passage. The sequence presented in John 12, Jews witnessing to Jesus and Greeks seeking him out as a result, is the reverse of what we heard in the first chapter of the same gospel. There, it says that Jesus finds Philip, and Philip finds Nathanael, who is identified as an Israelite by Jesus. Although in John 1, it is a Greek who brings a son of Israel to Jesus, significantly, Jesus acknowledges that he had seen Nathanael before he was called by Philip. In other words, as a son of Israel, Nathanael was among the chosen of God, whose rejection resulted in his being scattered among the nations and then being brought back together along with them. This is, in a nutshell, the scriptural scenario St. Paul presents in his letter to the Romans. The fact that the sequence is reversed in John 12, Jews evangelizing non-Jews, and more specifically Greeks, can be seen as a sign of the times. It indicates that the judgment of the world Read, the crucifixion slash glorification of Christ is at hand, something which the prophet Isaiah saw clearly and of which he spoke. Finally, the lectionary of the Orthodox Church understands this well in its placement of this passage from John 12 at Orthros and Compline on the third day of Holy Week, Great and Holy Wednesday. John offers a similar message of urgency and impending judgment as the other two passages for Holy Monday, in which Jesus curses the fig tree in Matthew so that it never produces fruit again. And for Holy Tuesday, Jesus' harsh invective against the hypocrisy of the scribes and Pharisees, also from Matthew. 
In John 12, the evangelist even references Isaiah in an aside by way of explaining that the rejection of Jesus by the Jews in this gospel is nothing new or unexpected. In verse 39 and 40 of John 12, we hear, Therefore they could not believe, because, Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they should see with their eyes, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn, so that I should heal them. So while the church is commemorating Jesus going to his death, the scripture readings present the prospect of judgment looming ahead inevitably. It is to the point that repentance isn't even an option anymore. The fig tree cannot produce, having been cursed by Jesus, and as Isaiah proclaimed, it is God himself who blinds and hardens those who, after repeated invitations, refuse to submit. This concludes episode 16 of A Light to the Nations. Thank you for listening. I look forward to meeting you again soon.